What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. Welcome to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. I'm June Grosso. Every day we bring you insight and analysis into the most important legal news of the day. You can find more episodes of the Bloomberg Law Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. Philadelphia is suing seven of the largest Wall Street investment banks, accusing them of costing local governments billions of dollars by colluding to fix the prices on floating rate bonds issued to finance public works. Joining me is Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. Bob, this is an antitrust suit at heart, accusing the banks of forming a cartel. Tell us about some of the key allegations in the complaint. Sure, Jude. So uh, great to be with you. Thanks for having me on again. Um, so the, the, the charge is that basically over the last, or the claim I should say, is that over the last decade, um, it seems, right, even more than a decade, starting in 2008, the claim is that banks um, that are responsible for resetting the rates on these particular floating rate bonds on a weekly basis were colluding to set those rates. Um, they weren't um, uh, sort of abiding by their contractual obligations to try to set them as low as possible uh, given market conditions. Um, instead, they were supposedly, the claim is that they were colluding together to set them at particular rates that were in effect indifferent to or unmindful of market conditions. Uh, and that in consequence, what ended up happening uh, was that the various entities in question that issued these bonds were paying much higher uh, interest rates uh, over time, over the last 11 years, uh, than they otherwise would have done. Right? So uh, the, the, the suit has been brought under you know, a variety of different antitrust statutes, including uh, the usual suspects, the, the Sherman uh, Act and the, and the Clayton uh, Act. Um, and that means, of course, that the, uh, the uh, claimants are also seeking treble damages, which are available um, under those two uh, uh, enactments. A whistleblower from one of the firms led to investigations by the Justice Department and the Securities mm -hmm. Exchange Commission starting in 2015. And often it's mm -hmm. the government suits that lead to civil lawsuits. Why has there been no action by government regulators here? Well, that's a tough one, June. Um, you know, my, my first thought would be that, well, you know, they've, they've, they're sort of overburdened. They're investigating so much in these in these recent years that um, it's taken them you know, longer to get at this. Um, they wanted to be sure uh, before they proceeded. But these are just sort of speculations on my part. Um, it would be, you know, that would be a great question, for example, <laughs> uh, to, to, you know, to put to the officials um, if they would dare uh, come on, you know, come on, on on the air. That would be that would be great to have them. But we have you now, yeah. Bob. So you mentioned yeah. they're seeking triple damages for antitrust violations. They're also seeking punitives. Is that a hard sell here? I mean, if the allegations are true, I would not think, or I should say if the allegations are found to be true, I would not think that, that would be a very hard sell. Uh, because the allegations are of something really quite egregious. You know, if you think about it, the, the sort of broader significance of this suit is, is, is not to be overlooked, right? So multiple municipalities and multiple sort of sub-municipal units of government 
um, that basically are in charge of or they are providing various forms of infrastructure. Also, many 501c3 organizations that provide educational services and other kinds of publicly, uh, publicly used facilities finance their operations, right, with these variable rate demand obligations, these burdos, as they're sometimes called. And the idea here is that, you know, the rates are supposed to be very, very low, partly because the buyers of the particular securities can always unload them, right? They're very, very liquid. And the banks are acting as go-betweens. They're kind of a bit like market makers in uh, with respect to these burdos. These are basically the, you know, sort of the, the agents uh, who are you know, meant to go and find additional buyers. Uh, they're called remarketing agents to find additional buyers for these things when some people want to unload them. So what this means basically is lots of the infrastructure services that we all enjoy, um, we all enjoy partly because of this particular market for these particular instruments that are, again, very low interest uh, for the uh, issuing entities, largely municipal and government entities, but also 501c3s. If it turns out then that the entities that have been entrusted with the remarketing of these things when and, and, and the resetting of the interest rates on a periodic basis with a view to keeping them as low as possible have been abusing their position in doing that and have been, in effect, uh, acting as monopolists or as uh, oligopolists um, in, in a in a kind of a price-fixing scheme that's harming the municipalities and the broader public then that makes use of these services and pays taxes to make up the difference when the uh, uh, bond issuances don't do the job, then this is a real, you know, this is effectively a crime against the public, uh, and it's, it's quite egregious, again, if it's true. Um, so I would not think punitives would be very a, a very hard sell here at all. The whole point behind punitives is to disincent this kind of behavior, and this is, again, quite remarkably anti, uh, should we call it sort of sociopathic behavior, if indeed it occurred. Well, Bob, <clears throat> global banks have paid something like $9 billion in the last seven years for manipulating bond interest rates and benchmarks. Mm -hmm. Is it still yeah. going on, or have they learned a lesson at this point? Well, it, it's hard to tell at this point, June. I mean, one would hope that they would have learned a lesson, but, but here's the, the problem. First of all, as we're seeing right now, a lot of the wrongs um, that appear to have been committed or, or at least are alleged to have been committed are only coming to the surface rather late in the game. Right? Mm -hmm. And then, of course, the investigations take forever, and then the litigation itself takes forever. And then finally, to top it off, oftentimes, even when guilt is found or liability is found or a settlement is reached, the fine or the penalty that's paid is pretty small potatoes in comparison to the, the benefits or the gains that are had through the dastardly deeds, right? Um, so my own thought is that this probably is continuing, even though I have no specific evidence to back that up. But my guess would be that it still is just because of the disparity between uh, the penalty on the one hand and the profits that can be made by committing the wrongs on the other hand. And for that reason, in turn, it seems to me that we have to get very serious very soon about truly penalizing in a big way. And that means not just fines or penalties against the banking institutions, but fines, penalties, and even prison time, perhaps, uh, against individual human beings who are, of course, the, uh, the critters through whom these banking institutions work. Now, this lawsuit, it says the people running the bank's bond desks met regularly in person at the Municipal Bond Club in New York mm -hmm. and by phone mm -hmm. and electronically. Does it sound like mm -hmm. there is a lot of evidence the banks are going to have to explain away? About a minute here. 
Sure, sure. It does sound that way to me, right? I mean, now it's possible they can say, well, you know, we we met regularly uh, uh, in this way and on this basis um, for for many, many years, but all we talked about was golf. Um, And if they can somehow (laughs) prove that, then that's great for them, right? Uh But I mean, it's it's a little hard to imagine, right, what else they would be talking about under such circumstances. We don't know what the electronic Mm -hmm. communications are. That that might be something. Yeah. Another one where we'll see that they said things over emails and texts that they shouldn't have. Mm-hmm. We have mm-hmm. seen that exactly. before, Bob. Yeah. <laughs> I don't help. know why people don't learn, but we'll see, we'll see what happens here. <laughs> Evidence yet to come. Thank you so much, Bob. That's Robert Hockett, a professor at Cornell Law School. And the banks that were named in the suit by Philadelphia are J.P. Morgan Chase, Bank of America, Citigroup, Goldman Sachs, Wells Fargo, RBC Capital Markets, and Barclays. Seven banks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Law Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to the show on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and on Bloomberg.com slash podcasts. I'm June Grosso. This is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com enterprise data to learn more.